Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the AGA Podcast. Small talk, big topics. I'm your host, Matthew Whitson, today with Dr. Nina Nandy. Hey, Nina, how are you? Hey, Matt, how are you? I'm doing great. I am so excited to be here. We have a very special podcast today with a topic that's near and dear to both of our hearts, mentorship. It's mentorship day. I'm excited. So today's conversation is going to be with two full professors who have had wonderful, prestigious careers. They have both been very successful in a few different arenas, clinical research, and really have had kind of a bevy of mentees over the years as well. So we're hoping to gleam a little bit of kind of their wisdom today and how they approach mentorship. So we are extremely lucky to have uh, Dr. Lin Chang, who is a full professor of medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. She's also the co-director of the Oppenheimer Center for Neurobiology of Stress and Resilience, and also the program director at UCLA's GI Fellowship. She has won numerous awards for her teaching, mentorship, and uh, her research in basic or clinical research, and she's also got the AGA Distinguished Clinician Award. So the other guest today is Dr. Jim Lewis for my fellowship alma mater, University of Pennsylvania. Jim is a full professor of medicine and epidemiology at Penn. He is an associate director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Program. He oversees the T32 Epidemiology Fellows at the GI Fellowship at Penn uh, and has also won numerous awards along the way. So what are you excited about today? I know we're going to have a great conversation with them. Yeah, so I'm really excited about how they have different mentorship styles based on the types of mentees mm-hmm. they have, whether they are, you know, a junior faculty, like assistant associate professors versus fellows versus research mentees. I think that's a field that we haven't covered before. And it's something certainly unique to these individuals. What about you? What are you looking forward to? So I'm looking forward to that. I'm also really looking forward to hearing how their careers evolved as they kind of really became much more of a leadership role and more mentorship with more kind of diverse crew, as you were saying, of mentees, but really kind of how they approach it. How do they work with someone that's not working so well? Yeah. And really, what advice do they give uh, mentees to have an effective relationship? So I think both people that identify as mentees and junior faculty that are evolving into mentors actually can take a lot from this conversation. Absolutely. So without further ado, here is our podcast with Drs. Lin Chang and Jim Lewis on mentorship. So Dr. Chang, why don't you first give us an overview of your career and where you're at now? Well, when I was a uh, third year, uh, no, when I was a GI fellow at UCLA, the program was I could, I, I'd less integrated as now, and I was more at a county facility. And when I was going through fellowship, everybody, the faculty said to me, oh, you're going to go in private practice because you're, you're good with patients, you're a people person. But what happened was my husband wanted to do vascular surgery fellowship at Mayo Clinic. And so we went there for a year. And that year, I decided it was very inspiring being there. And I decided I want to go in academia. And so I the private practice job, which is one of the biggest practices in the LA area, was trying to get me to sign the contract. And I couldn't sign it. And I, I basically told them that I wanted to go into academia and I didn't have a job and I ended up getting pregnant. You know, so I saw these situations. Uh, I ended up going back uh, to LA and we both uh, were on faculty at Harbor UCLA, which is a county facility. And so I did a lot of general GI, GI bleeding. I did a gallstone pancreatitis study. And then I realized, you know, I... I'm not going to be a pink bill person. I, I think I meant to do something different. And so I ended up uh, going into IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, and started working with Emron Meyer, who became my mentor. And he was at UCLA. So I completely made a switch after four years of being a faculty member, which is kind of late. And then I applied for a grant, uh, NIH grant, and then I moved to UCLA and gave up a salary. And then it was a very steep learning curve to do more neurogastroenterology and motility. And so I really focused more on research, and then I learned to take care of patients with a different mentor. So you can obviously have more than one mentor, which was who was mm-hmm. Doug Drossman. And then, then I guess as I got more senior, I 
didn't really know if I could be a leader, to be honest. But then I started taking more leadership roles. I was a president of the ANMS Society and also became program director and then eventually vice chief and also doing some leadership at AGA and the governing board. So I've really kind of spanned from being, you know, patient care and then research and then teaching and mentoring and then administrative. So I've kind of spanned in my career, but it's weird to think that I was almost going to go in private practice. (laughs) What about you, Dr. Lewis? Why don't you give us an overview of uh, your career? I always think that I'm one of the few trainees who comes in as a clinical fellow and switches to being a research fellow. But then I heard Lynn's story and uh, (laughs) know that she's my uh, compatriot. But yeah, so I came to Penn as as the one clinical fellow per year. And however, I'd had a number of experiences that were not like heavy research experiences. They were more the product of a mentor who had taken some people under his wing and said, I just want to show you about an alternative career path. And that piqued my interest. And so as I came into fellowship, I started exploring other opportunities, met some people, found an opportunity to do some formal training in research, and then had to make a sort of critical life decision of what I was going to do. And And for me, it was actually not a super easy decision, even though I had been so happy in my second and third year of fellowship doing this research training. But it was definitely a little bit like Lynn alluded to, you know, I was breaking with my preconceived notion of what my career was going to look like. And I just decided I'm going to roll the dice and see how this goes. And I started my career for the first many, many years, always having sort of a three-year plan and three-year milestones that I wanted to achieve and just said to myself, see if I can achieve them. And if I don't, there are other career paths that, that I could choose. The one thing I will say about my own individual experience is my struggles in figuring out my career path really largely had to do with not having either a lot of mentoring before that time, or a lot of actual self-awareness. If I look back on some of the things that I had done, you know, in college and med school and residency and things like that, it all made sense that this was my destiny. I just didn't have the self-awareness to figure that out at the time. And I didn't, up until this one individual took us in to introduce us to the concept, I really didn't have a role model in that way to know that that was a career path I could choose. So, so for me, it, maybe it was serendipity. I, am uh, certainly indebted to that experience. If you, I always tell people, not many people can say they had the light bulb moment, but I literally had a moment sitting in a room one night where I was like, wow, that's pretty neat. I think I could do that. Why, why don't I look into it? So, and that's how my career sort of got started. I would say that we both kind of had circuitous routes. You know, a lot of people think you have a very straightforward pathway, but often it's not that way and you kind of find what you want to do. But I was thinking about, I think I was the same way as you. I don't think I was as self-aware in fellowship. And some of the faculty said, oh, you're going to go in private practice. And they told the research fellow, you know, she's going to have an academic career in it. And now it's completely reversed. She's in practice and I'm academia, which tells you that fellowship faculty don't know what they're talking about <laughs> or they don't know <laughs> or they don't know you well enough and they make judgments and so that's probably a good point about a mentor is to know you well mm-hmm. right right before they give you advice or you ask them for advice so what is your week to week interaction with your mentees r- like right now um, you must have mentees at all levels whether they are junior faculty versus trainees or maybe people that find you through the different society uh, mentorship pages So what does that look like for both of you? So my interactions with my mentees week to week range from very structured to informal. Uh, One of the things that I have found from my own experiences as a mentee and as a mentor is that I think it's really important to have structure to the relationship. And so I structure things through my calendar, which basically means You know, we have standing meetings when we're going to get together, whether that's weekly, every other week, monthly, depending on, you know, somebody's career level and how how much 
direct contact they need. And then that's obviously supplemented with, you know, the interactions that you have. I used to say in the hallway by the, you know, the water cooler, the refrigerator, et cetera. But today it's the interactions that you have, you know, in a pandemic by text and email or phone calls, you know, on, on the, the spur of the moment. But I, I do, you know, the first time that I really had, you know, mentorship on that level, the model was we have these standing meetings. If you think you have nothing to talk about, I'm sure we do come with an agenda and let's meet on a regular basis. And it's, it was really helpful for me. And it's something I've tried to carry forward. I've always found that when you're mentoring people in research or if someone's mentoring, it's more research uh, related people. I, I feel like there, you could do more standing meetings when you mentor someone that's more clinical, like a clinical fellow, it's harder to do that based on their rotations. So I just try to do, I don't really do standing meetings but I'll do, I'll every so often want to get together to kind of keep a project going. And sometimes they reach out to me, but I would say often I reach out to them, but it's really more about, you know, keeping the ball rolling and making sure you're, you're on task. So I think it varies. So for both of you, for context, is the majority of your mentorship role in the research realm? Is it clinical? Is it just career development? And you both have different roles, so it might be a little different for both of you. Well, I, I would say it's all of them. So for the fellows, it's usually a clinical research project and because I do more clinical research. But with the fellows also, it's career development and also their performance. So we regularly meet like twice a year and, it, and we may shift who meets with the fellows. But I'm always open to meet with anybody when they want to meet. I would say for the junior faculty, I've been mentoring them more on career development. And I, I realized that that they do need, and it could be in all different topics, right? So one wants to just learn to be more efficient and organized and how she should set up her lab. And the other one is asking me, I just got off a meeting from her that we now meet every other week. And it's really about leadership, that she wants to develop leadership skills. So it's different. It, it could be research. It could be more career development, work-life balance. There's different topics. Mm-hmm. Jim, what about for you? I agree. I in my earlier days, the mentoring was almost 100% research-related. But th- that evolves over time and as your positions change in your, in your given institution. And, you know, sometimes the clinical mentoring can be, like, wonderfully rewarding also. And there's so much that is really career development because I think when we're training in gastroenterology, and I, I feel quite certain this is true in, in all of the medical specialties, you don't get a whole lot of guidance on how to build a career. You get a lot of guidance on how to take care of patients. You get a lot mm-hmm. of guidance on how to do research. You get a fair amount of guidance on here's how to give a talk or write a chapter or things like that. But building a career, there's a lot of steps and decisions to be made along that way. And I think it's really important that that's taken into account. And so my earlier comment about even if you think we don't have anything to discuss, I'm sure there is, those are always a window of opportunity to let's take a look at how career things are going and do, you know, the sort of as much as one can in a short meeting, you know, the 360 view of of your career and where are things going and how are you getting there? I think uh, mentoring for career development is one of, I, I find that fascinating. I actually really enjoy that a lot. I find it's that really so interesting. interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. So, but is that why you were drawn to being a program director? Is that interest kind of looking back at why you took on that role? Is that one of the reasons you took on that role? I took on that. I never thought I would be a good program director. I was actually scared of all the paperwork, <laughs> all the requirements. But it was because my my chief asked me to do it and thought I would be good at it. And I didn't really know that I would be good at it. And I love it. And I do enjoy probably the most is seeing young people develop their career. And I always find that fellows, I just find that young people these days, they always are trying to plan what the next thing they have to do, you know, to get into a good college and medical school and residency. And sometimes I'm not sure they think enough and reflect on themselves of what they really want to do or what they're really good at. But fellowships at the end of the road, right? Then you're going to have a job. And this is where you have to really reflect 
like Jim did, right? And, and I did on what do you really want to do in your career? And, and that's hard to do, but it's also, it's also kind of, it's almost freeing, but it's, it's also a good exercise and you learn a lot about yourself. So you have your research mentees, you have the fellows that you're mentoring as part of uh, being program director. Do you have one particular mentorship style that kind of transcends and you apply to all the different types of folks you're mentoring? Or do you change it up based on whether it's fellow, junior faculty, research, and what they need? Or are there certain things that you uh, kind of use for everyone? I think my style is, this probably also comes from being a a doctor of um, functional GI patients, where it takes a while to get the, the history, is, <laughs> and you have to integrate a lot of different factors. But my style is to first find out from the mentee, what is it that they want at that time? And it could be different, right? Uh, so what do they want to get out of it? What's important to them? What do they want to do? So I do ask some questions more about self-reflection. And then the other thing that I try to do is try to give advice according to their perception or their perspective, not what I would do. And I, I do think this separates a really good mentor from a not so good is trying to, even when you give advice to a friend or anybody, right, is that you want to give not advice of what, what I would do. It's more of from their perspective, what's good for them. And so I tried to do that. It's more of a humanistic approach rather than a mimicry approach trying to create Lin Chang 2.0. Yeah, I would like to do that, but I haven't been successful. So <laughs> I don't believe what in clones, you? actually. <laughs> uh, what about you, Jim? So, Matt and Nina, you know, I do not think that I have a single formula for everybody because everybody is different. And I hearken this back to one of my clinical mentors, who was Julie Darren, who is a wonderful IBD clinician. And I would always say to Julie, Julie, this is so hard. And he said, no, you just need to listen to the patient and they'll tell you what's going on and they'll, they'll sort of guide you into what to do for them. And I think a really important part of mentoring is you have to be able to listen. And you have to, I certainly have no expertise in psychology, but you do need to sort of read the individual and figure out, you know, is this the person who needs just doors open for them? Is this the person who really needs pushed? Is this the person who needs constructive criticism? And is this the person who just needs an empathetic ear because they're going to figure it out on their own? They just need to sound, you know, a sounding board. But there's so many different models of people and what they need. I think you, you have to take that into account. And I, I would just add one other thing to this. So I do, I do a lot of group mentoring. If you do group mentoring, you have to also preserve time for one-on-one -on -one mentoring because some things work better one-on-one -on -one and sometimes group discussions can be really informative and help people realize, first of all, oh, I didn't know they have the same issue I have. Or, you know, so you can learn from other people and you can get additional feedback and comments, but it really, I think, depends on who the individual is. Now, both of you kind of identified mentors that kind of steered you almost back in different directions, or at least caused you to have pause and rethink your planned career trajectory. Do you guys still, as full professors, have mentors right now? Or are you at 100% mentee, 0% mentor? Or have they just moved to colleagues? How does that evolve as you become more senior in your career? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I do think that some of my mentors have become more colleagues, mm -hmm. but I feel like you always can learn and you always want to have a mentor and it could be just a different relationship. I would say that as my career developed, I needed, oops, I needed more uh, leadership mentors, Okay, you know, more from that administrative uh, aspect, because that was more of what I was less familiar with. I had less experience in. So I think that you, that your, your needs, just like anybody at any age, has, changes over time. Uh, but I definitely still have mentors, and I think that's really helpful. Yeah, I would really agree. What you need from your mentors changes, but everybody needs a mentor. It's, it's sad to not have one. And, you know, I, I have actually, I certainly go to colleagues 
not infrequently to say, here's something I'm struggling with. What would, what would, how would you weigh in on this? What mm-hmm. are your thoughts? But, but I also have a couple people who are at other institutions who are a bit more senior than I am. Matt, you're probably thinking that's impossible. But, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not thinking that in any way. <laughs> um, <laughs> in any case. And they're like the sort of people who you know you will get sage advice from. Mm-hmm. And I use times not in a pandemic, but when we used to have meetings, you know, conferences in person mm-hmm. to reach out to them ahead of time and say, can we sit down, get a cup of coffee? I just want to, I want to bounce some stuff off of you. You know, various times when you're thinking about what's the next phase of my career going to be like, you know, it's really good to have someone who you can talk to. And I think one of the pluses of having somebody who's outside of your institution at this phase Mm -hmm. of my career is they don't have a horse in the race, you know, at my home institution. So, you know, they can give you really an unbiased opinion on, on how they, how they feel about a concept. Mm -hmm. I would say the other thing that I do is not just ask for that advice or, or that mentorship is Mm -hmm. I think I've gotten better at, uh, watching how other people function. So like, say, for example, I want to know how is it best to be vice chief in my position right now or to be a chief and then watching different chiefs and how they interact and how they run. And and I think that, you know, again, like we talked about being less self-aware when we're younger and becoming more self-aware when we get older. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I get that mentorship from observation also. And then just having some experience so I know what works and not works. And and also, you know, having to be true to yourself and knowing what would work for you. That may not be your style because you could have different effective styles. But it just it's just a matter of what's best for, for you. All I can say is I 100% echo that. It, you Particularly for skills that you weren't necessarily trained in, mm-hmm. but as your career goes on, you need them. I think for myself, like I... I had this sort of career changing moment in, in fellowship that I told you about, but I also had the opportunity to serve, you know, a nine year term from chair elect to immediate post chair of the national scientific advisory committee for the Crohn's and colitis foundation. And that sort of learning experience was unbelievable. I was completely, if you ask me unprepared for the role, when I was at chair elect, but I got to watch somebody, you know, through those three years. And then, you know, you have other people who you can ask while you're in the role, but it it was like a huge evolutionary process in the way that I thought about myself and the way I went about things. But just being able to watch people in the way that they were doing things was, you know, in that chair elect role was like super helpful. Did you find yourself approaching similar situations in completely different ways? Did you really rethink how you'd approach a tricky situation by watching the chair in front of you or prior chairs? And Lynn, I think same question for you in terms of the vice chairs and everything else. I definitely um, saw certain styles and way people ran things that I didn't think were effective and I Mm. didn't like. And I... (laughs) Well, it's always good to know what you don't want, right? And then you learn what you do want. <laughs> so you need to actually both. But then I also started uh, realizing that more of the type of person I was, like I was more of a consensus person. Uh, I like to get different ideas. I like to hear from people. And then I try to decide what is the best path forward. That's just who I am. That's the way I think. That's the style I think is effective. And, and I've seen styles that are not like that. And I've seen styles that are like that. So it just reinforces it. Mm. Okay. What about you, Jim? It, it was the experience of the chair in front of you. I 100% agree. There are different styles in the way that people approach things and you find the style that you like. I think it also is an opportunity for you to think about where your strengths are and where your, where your weaknesses are and how to leverage your strengths and raise your weaknesses, if you will, so that they're, they're not such weaknesses because, and this is true, I think it doesn't matter if you're in a leadership role or, or not, like just the way you run your career, it's true in, in all aspects that there, 
you're, you're going to have things that are your strengths and things that are not your strengths and, and looking for people who do well, what are not your strengths, you know, is a useful way to make yourself more balanced. So what if it's not going well, what do you do when you think something might not be working where a mentee's style is just completely different than the style that you've adopted? And I guess, how do you effectively break up with a mentee? Do you say, you know, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, Nina, that's that's a great question. And I, I would say there are times when it's not a great match, right? But I think in some senses, it comes down to what the role of the mentor is. And I think it's important for the mentor to remember that this is not about me. This is about you. This is for you. I get some vicarious pleasure out of your success. But in, but in the grand scheme of things, the mentor's role is to help you in, in your career. So I think you have to ask yourself, am I really not the right mentor for them? Or do I need to look for other ways to help this person or find other resources to help this person? Because many, you know, the, I guess it was Hillary Clinton who made famous the line, it takes a village. Or she didn't make up the, mm-hmm. she didn't make up the line, but you know, it takes a village and mentoring. It's most people aren't going to have one mentor in in their life. They're going to have yeah. multiple people and you may just need to pull other people into that relationship. And eventually one of them may become the main mentor and you take a bit of a backseat. I think that's a really key point is that you, and you probably already know that, is that you can have more than one mentor. In fact, not one person can be everything to anybody. I mean, even in regular personal life, right? And so I think it's really valuable to have multiple mentors. But one thing I was thinking about, Nina, when you were asking that question is it's really about communication Mm -hmm. and honesty and trying to pick the right mentor-mentee relationship at the beginning so that means you have to communicate what you want and the mentor has to know that they what they want to or if we can work together. But I definitely feel like those relationships don't work out as well. And I it's probably better to either find other mentors, like Jim said, but it also if it's really not working, just to, to end it if if that's better to you know, cut the losses. But I think if if you can a lot of times I find the problem, the issues are all about communication. And if you can communicate better and you both can state what you want, you could probably remedy the situation or make it better. And the other thing that I always think about is, you know, especially if you're not sure about a location that you're at or a job, I think it's always good to think about what the pros and the cons are. And are there more pluses than minuses? I mean, there's definitely always good and bad with anything. And I think that if a place or a situation or a relationship is providing you more positives and maybe not that exceed some of the not so positives, then you should really focus on that positive part and get out what you can out of that. Exactly. So I was thinking about Lynn's, Lynn's comment and I don't know if this is true. So maybe Lynn, you can weigh in on this or Nina and Matt do as well. There is an element of mentoring, which maybe is helping people not to make purely emotional decisions. Yeah. You're there to be pragmatic, help them step back from something for a moment, look at it in a very pragmatic way so that they make the right decision. You're not there to make the decision for them. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the roles of the mentor is to try and keep people from making bad decisions. Yeah. You didn't say, you didn't include Matt in that. Is that does he make emotional decisions or he doesn't make emotional decisions? <laughs> I think Jim is reflecting on I had the privilege of being on service with Jim as I was making a final decision between some jobs. And I think rounds were, yeah, this person's bleeding, but which job is better? <laughs> Priorities. Uh, <laughs> I think in between each bed um, in the uh, newly built uh, SICU at Presby was that experience. So I appreciate that, that I was not, I was led to not make an emotional decision based on one or two things. I don't know if Jim remembers it as such, but that's, that, that is actually probably one of the, uh, the things that I took away from our conversations. It, w- it was helpful for me. So what I was thinking about when Jim was talking is 
I think one thing that's been hard for me to learn, and, and I'm, mm-hmm. I, I'm definitely better than I used to be, is to not take things personally. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I, I naturally will do that. And I think I'm more of a people pleaser. But I think over time, and especially as you get more experience and evolve and start doing leadership, you, you can't take things personally. It's kind of business. And if I can do that, it's better off. So you're just trying to do the right thing. That's what always guides me when I have a difficult decision, right? You know, you have to know who you're really working towards for the fellowship. The fellowships are the fellows are the priority, right? But, but it's always comes down to doing the right thing. And then I don't think. Then you, even if something doesn't go well as well, but you, if you felt like you did the right thing, then I think you can have some comfort in that. Absolutely. Right. Have you can't, ever had mentees or fellows who just feel that, you know, they followed your career, they're very interested in what you're interested in, they want to sort of quote be like you in some way, and and they're interested in your research because of who you are as a mentor, but it may not be a good fit for them, and it may not really be what they're interested in. Sometimes, you know, we've got faculty that are just so excited and so motivated by what they're interested in that sort of rubs off on other people and you feel like that's what you want to do. Don't you hear so many times that that people say that they go into a field or they do something because they were inspired by a mentor that they worked with or a, someone more senior to them? I mean, people say that all the time. I can specifically tell you who in medical school made me want to do GI. It's Tom Ullman. He knows this. He hates when I call him out on this. But Tom Ullman at Sinai is the reason I went to GI. Uh, absolutely. Just like a small interaction about diverticula. So, Lynn, I want to go back to a point you made a little bit earlier about the mentee-mentor dynamic. Because I think, you know, in terms of our listenership, people tend to be more junior. So assistant professors and down and trainees and med students and residents what would you guys identify as the keys to a successful mentee-mentor relationship? Like, are there absolute do's and absolute don'ts? And it sounds like communication is going to be an absolute do. But anything else that people can kind of take home to really um, assess their, their their dynamics with their mentors or mentees? Sometimes it's this intangible thing. You know, sometimes you try to set people up together. It's kind of like relationship, Right. But, you know, they aren't really meant to match together. And sometimes you have to meet that person and see if you have that kind of more ease at communication or, or have a common goal. And sometimes you can't even describe it. And I think that if you feel like that's the right person, you could communicate with them, you could work with them. It's someone you think you would enjoy. They they have a lot of the characteristics that you want or the accomplishments you want. Then I think that then you should should do that. But again, you know, I just feel that I did actually a talk once and I had these red flags for not good mentors, <laughs> kind of like we have red flags for IBS. <laughs> but, but, you know, when the mentor is not available is one of them, or they're really wanting you to be their mentee because they're getting something out of it. So you're more of an extension of them. But you really want a mentor who really genuinely wants to help you in your career. Like, you know, Jim said, you, you know, you get enjoyment out of that because you see that they're, that they're getting better and that they're growing. I think that's really important. You know, we had a, we have a leadership series at UCLA and there was an outside, very successful person who's not in medicine. And he gave a whole talk on, on what, how his career was. But one thing he said is that he developed his own mission statement mm. and his own mission statement was exceed expectations so that no whatever no matter what he did he wanted to exceed expectations and it made me think about what was my, what's my mission statement and the one i came up with was helping others help themselves so i i would say that i do that with my kids and i do that with my patients and i do that with fellows and and mentees i'm not really trying to do it for them i'm trying to help them understand what they need and so that they can do it they they need to be empowered to do that that's a lovely mission statement yeah that's fabulous i feel like that really helps with patients too when they feel that they're so out of control with their disease process to give the kind of the power back to them and i see how they can translate jim what about you are there uh, from your experience as a mentor, are there do's and don'ts or red flags in a mentee-mentor relationship? Yeah, I think one that Lynn alluded to that can't be can't be underestimated is that the mentor-mentee relationship is different from a boss-employee relationship. These are totally different relationships. 
And actually, we, as a mentor, you also need to help your mentees understand the dynamics of those different relationships and how, you know, how to work with personnel who are your colleagues, who are your employees, etc. But, but the mentee, you, the biggest red flag is that the mentor is using the mentee to advance their own career instead of being focused on advancing the mentee's career. And then on the, the flip side of the, of the do's and don'ts, sometimes it feels a little artificial and trite, but you know, many, many programs talk about at every stage in people's careers having, you know, what's my individual development plan or, or the likes. And while sometimes it can feel a bit artificial, I, I think it is a great tool to keep in your dues in your dues side that at least once a year it's worth getting people to not even just have the conversation, force them to put things down on paper and to self-evaluate how they think they're they're doing. And then you'll see there's obviously it's like Goldilocks, right? There's the ones who are totally overly overly critical of themselves. The ones who only are convinced that they're the next gift to the world. And then there's the ones who are right in the middle. But more often than not, it's people being overly critical of themselves. And I I think that that can be very detrimental to people's career. They need to be able to see their successes as much as as their failures or their weaknesses. I don't even like to use the term failures. They need to be able to see their strengths as much as their weaknesses, work on making their weaknesses better, but be proud of of what they're doing well. And so I think it's a really important part of that relationship. And at at least once a year, if not a couple times a year, I think it's a worthwhile exercise. You know, it's really interesting. I just had this meeting, as I said before, with a junior faculty. Uh, She's actually a PhD scientist. And she used the term, why failed at this? And I said, what are you, what are you calling a failure? What do you think of failing at something? But I just thought you should not use that term, just like Jim was saying. It's a very negative term, right? It's just like, what could I have done better? You know, just assess what I did. And, you know, fellowship, they call it areas of improvement. You know, (laughs) what are areas of improvement? But I think that's more, you know, the other thing that I think is important in a mentee-mentor relationship is the mentee, you know, we've talked a lot about from a mentor standpoint, because you're interviewing Jim and me, but I think it's also what does a mentee do in that relationship, Absolutely. right? Because it's bi-directional and it's 50-50. And they, it, there's two people in that relationship. And I think mentees also have to be more proactive mm. and they have to be respectful of the mentor, but they have to also ask for things too. And they have to know that the mentor sometimes is really busy and they may not always go back and say, oh, are you okay? And you know, how's everything mm. going? And it's really the mentee that if the mentor is asking for something, they should get it on time. They should be on time. You know, they should have established what makes a successful relationship. But I, I do think the mentee needs to take responsibility. It's not only the mentor helping them. Absolutely. And that, and that goes, I think, to your point earlier about communication, which is laying out the expectations. I know that uh, everyone on this call, this discussion is very busy. One of the helpful things I've learned to say is I've like started putting my toe in the mentorship waters has if you email me, you don't hear back within three days or whatever it is. I may have missed the email because of the flurry of emails. I give you full permission. I encourage you to email me again because it'll put it back on my radar. You're not harassing me. I would like you to do that and take that ownership. And that actually was very helpful to me over the last uh, six to 12 months. I don't know if Nina or, or Jim, you guys have had similar experiences. We put that out there because I think some, it just depends on all of our personalities are so different in medicine. Some people might see that and get discouraged and say, you know, I really tried. This person really isn't interested in me, busy. You know, maybe I should just move on to someone else. But if you say that, you know, you're being active, you're engaged, you're telling them that, hey, I just have a lot on my plate and emails get buried. So, you know, I think that encouragement is important. But then also, like Dr. Chang said, it's important for the mentees to have some you know, responsibility in the relationship as well, just like our patients have responsibility in their care to be on top of things, to, you know, email on time to, if you say that you want to have a certain outline done by a certain time frame or have some results done to, to have that at your meeting yeah. and to have a progressive relationship. 
one question I wanted to ask you guys, just from a mentor side, you know, as you both said, it's about help. I'll use Lynn's line if I get it right. It's helping others help themselves. Mm -hmm. How do you balance everything you have to do for the mentee in terms of support with your own needs and your own career development? Do you find that that runs into conflict? And if so, how do you kind of, how do you create that balance? Do you mean, uh, do you have enough time to mentor them and also do the other things that you have to do? Is that what you Yeah, mean? I think that, I think that might be one of, one of the definite ways that would interact. It might be time. It might be, they need something for you. You just can't provide right now, but you have a longer relationship. How do you balance all that? Well, I, I think that's also just like the same answer. I'll give you the same answer when people say, how do you do everything that you do? Uh, I think it's prioritizing and your priorities may change. But if, if something's really important, I mean, overall, you want to keep some consistency. I think that's really good. I think Jim was saying that. I, th- I, I think people like consistency and I, I think it's better for a relationship. But sometimes you have to change priorities. If something was really important to them and they said that to you, you should stop what you're doing and helping them. And, and if something can wait and you have to gauge that with the person, but I think prioritizing is helpful and then maybe not taking on too many mentees mm-hmm. either, right? Because then the mentees you have are not being able to get the attention that they probably deserve and need. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know that I have a whole lot of wisdom to add to that other than there's, you know, you mentor on so many different levels. The biggest in academics place that one would see conflict is is independence in research the the other part is in sort of leadership and getting out of the way to let other people take on roles of leadership there you know i guess the buzzword today is mentorship versus sponsorship and we haven't really talked about sponsorship but i think that the two are intertwined. You can have a sponsor who's obviously separate from your mentor. Mm-hmm. But but again, this the mentor who really has the interest of the mentee at, at heart is going to be willing to open those doors, step aside, let someone else have that moment in the in the light, the leadership role, etc. Mm-hmm. And so to be an effective mentor, I think you have to also be comfortable with your position in your career. And obviously that evolves over time, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's constantly evolving, but particularly as you get a little bit farther along, it's okay. Like, I don't need to be the moderator for this session. It's going to mean a lot more to somebody else is like just a simple example. I think that's a great example. And, you know, the sponsorship step is the next one of these two or three people might be wonderful for that to moderate that panel. How did you guys, is there something you did as you evolved from men, from like a mentee largely to a mentor largely? Like, do you remember that transition, that switch in your career? Or are there things that junior faculty, like assistant professors should be doing as they evolve more and more into a mentorship role? I think that there's one main difference between a mentee and a mentor. Um, It's not about how smart you are or how hardworking you are or how charming or better speaker. To me, it's solely experience. That's what differentiates a mentor from a mentee. And I think if you're going to transition, you want to have some experience in whatever you're mentoring. So you probably don't want to mentor on a topic that you're not as experience. So, you know, if somebody wanted to start a IBD translational program, then they would go to Jim Lewis, right? But if they're still thinking like, when should I get pregnant and have work-life balance, you know, Jim might not be on the top of their list. (laughs) So you you want to pick, (laughs) so you want to just really, so I think if if someone's junior and they're going to start mentoring, they probably want to feel like they have the experience and the, Mm -hmm. the capacity and ability to do that. Otherwise, they can always help have somebody else help mentor them. But that's what I would probably say. But I think it's always good to do that, to start. That's great. So we have used a model for many years now as part of our T32 training grant of a junior mentor and a senior mentor so that the junior mentor can get some experience in mentoring mm-hmm. 
particularly leveraging their strengths, which in this scenario usually would mean their research experience, where they're able to be very helpful, and to some extent, their clinical experience, and they can fall back on the senior mentor for some of those bigger career decision guidance points. And I would say, from my own personal experience, when I made this sort of transition from mentee to from mentee to mentor, acknowledging our previous conversation that you're always still a mentee. Of There's course. always somebody out there. But but in that mentor role, I don't think I was great at the beginning. Um, there were parts I were I was better at, and other parts were clearly I didn't have the experience to fill that role, and uh, we needed other people to help fill in those slots. I feel the exact same way. Yeah, you're right. Now, I think that's wonderful. We are having a discussion as our uh, our companion piece to this with two assistant professors who are just moving from mentee 100% to some extent, really into more and more of a mentorship role. And we're going to be talking about like imposter syndrome and all those wonderful <laughs> things, which I'm sure we all experience. I know I'm experiencing it all the time. Well, so, Matt, it, I, Matt, I will tell you, I was interviewing somebody this morning who is a lot of years my junior. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, we were talking about different parts of our careers. And I said, I clearly have imposter syndrome about this aspect. And she's like, what are you talking about? How can you have imposter syndrome? We all have this sense of, you know, inferiority about different aspects of of what we do, because you can't be great at everything. Every med student does not believe that just yet, but (laughs) we'll get to them. No, that's something that I I, I learned recently. You know, you do, you want to be good at everything. And you could be good at many things, but you're not going to be the best at everything. And I think that's important to realize ourselves because it also allows you to allow other people to do things. Yeah. You know, just kind of what we were getting at before. It's also, it's like a really important lesson for mentees to say, I think it was Lynn who brought up, you know, the the uniqueness that fellowship experience is. I tell fellows all the time, this is going to probably be the last time in your professional career that you get two to three years to try and figure out who I'm going to be, what am I going to do. Acknowledge you want to be good at lots of things, but you're going to have to pick what are those one or two things that I'm going to try and be really, really, really good at and use this time to set yourself up for that because you, you can't be great at everything. And I don't think you have to achieve it so quickly. You know, I think a lot of times people feel very compelled that I've got to achieve everything uh, so fast. But then, you, you know, there's also burnout later on that's not so great. You know, like for example, I love uh, sports, but I would never want to be in a, a career where my peak is, you know, I'm uh, 30 and, you know, I'm over the hill at 35. You know, then what am I going to do with the rest of my life? But I, I do think that you just want to pace yourself and, you know, it all comes in time. I mean, if I look back at my career, I did things very slowly. I was never, and I, I was never really quick at a lot of things. And I always say this when I, I give talks is, you know, I'm much more like uh, I, the tortoise than the hare. Like I wasn't the hare, <laughs> but the tortoise wins the race, right? So you can just go at your pace and uh, you'll succeed if you work hard and, and believe in what you should do. And the other, uh, I heard this one panel and I thought he was the dean of this one institution. He said something interesting. He said that, you know, when I was younger, I never thought about, I want to be the head of this or the director of that or the dean of this or that. He said, I just did the best job I could do at whatever level I was at or whatever position I was mm-hmm. in. And then I think things will follow. I thought that was, that was a good observation, a good advice. That is good. I feel like people are so driven to just one endpoint. You know, it has to be this certain way or I have to land that dream job. You know, whereas, you know, a lot of people quit after the first year and they switch to something else and that's completely fine. And you don't have to have the one mentor. I think it's important from this talk that we learned that you can have different mentors for different aspects of your careers. You know, maybe not one person is right for everything. Nina, if I was, if I was going to give another piece of advice to a junior person that relates to this, it is that you're still young. 
this is the time to take a chance. I think many people finish their training and they, they're afraid to take a chance. And they're like, the sure answer is I know I'm good at this. Let me just go with that. Even if deep down in their soul, they love something else, but they're, they haven't developed that as far. Mm-hmm. It, you know, think of the, the 10,000 hour rule that, you know, comes out of the, out of the book. Like it takes time to get there. But if it, if you think it's what you might love while you're young, take that gamble, invest the time. And if it doesn't work out, like careers are a long time. You, you can make a role change in your career. Yeah. I think people just get, they're comfortable with familiarity, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it is harder to take a, a little leap. But I, I think if you I, I mean, I find that people are very are great at something if they're passionate about it. They're always going to be better at it, right? But sometimes I do feel that some young people are very, you know, as I'm getting older, more people are young. Uh, but, uh, you know, I always feel like they're in a rush. And I, I'm always thinking to myself, did someone tell you you only have two years to live or something? I mean, like, you know, why are we in such a rush? Like, you know, they have, you have so much time. And it's better to, you know, be smart about what you're doing. But I think it's, you know, follow your, your passion. I, first off, I would be love to be a fly on the wall as you ask a hyper vigilant resident, "Do you have only two years to live?" <laughs> <laughs> I don't ever say that, but I'm thinking, like, what's the rush? <laughs> no, I think I think that's a great point. So we actually traditionally end these discussions on what are the final pieces of advice you give to young faculty and to trainees right now. I don't know if you both kind of gave one full piece of advice there, but I don't know if you have anything to add to those two. I'll give the same advice that I give to people when they come to interview for a fellowship, or now we do virtual interviews. But every step of your career is a great opportunity for soul searching and, and trying to figure out what really makes you tick. And you, as Lynn just said, like you need to go where your passion is. Yeah, I mean, this is why I would bring the emotion part is and I, I'm, I'm sorry if I sound corny, okay? But it, it's really <laughs> follow your heart. I really think people should follow what's best. I always think that, you know, if we, if it's 100 people and you all are asked the same question or in the same situation, you could all choose different paths. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no right or wrong. It's just choosing what's past the path is best for you. And no one else knows that better than you. And you should choose that and, and not fear that because I think if it feels right, then it's going to be right. And you won't regret it. So I think that's a wonderful note to end on. Guys, thank you so much for being here. It's been wonderful talking to the both of you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJWitsonMD, at NinaNandyMD, and at CSCMD, podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.